0: Okay, if you turn to Psalm 69, while I'm away, uh, there'll be a couple of uh, people doing some psalms as well. Uh, Steve Johnson over from Catalina Foothills uh, will be in Psalm 37, and then right before I get back, Michael Mock will be uh, preaching on Psalm 23. Stu is going to depart from the plan, and that's okay. So... Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I I did not steal must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord, God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach. And my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him who you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, Set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify Him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad, and they will seek God. Let your hearts revive, for the Lord hears the needy and does not despise His own people who are prisoners." Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. That this was written, not just an expression of one man's pain, but also for our instruction, that we might endure, and that uh, through the encouragement of the the scriptures, have hope. As the God of endurance and encouragement, grant that we would see Jesus, the one in whom we hope, through the scriptures this morning that the Spirit would enable us to trust in Him as He is presented to us as a suffering servant this morning. We ask this in His name. Amen. Back in the mid-90s, I was robbed. And what they took from me largely was my uh, CD collection. And one of the CDs that I had there that I never replaced was... Charlie Peacock's West Coast Diaries, Volume 2. Yeah, most of you are going, what in the world is that? <laughs> it was sort of an unusual choice for me, uh, musically, because it was Charlie Peacock, who usually played keyboards. There's almost no keyboard on this on this album. Uh, he's, doing, he's singing, and his friend Vince Ebo is doing some backup vocals, and uh, his friend Jimmy A., is playing acoustic guitar. So if you know anything about me, you know that this is a very unlikely album for me to listen to, but I loved this album, and uh, soon I will be purchasing it again, I think, on uh, iTunes. Okay? It's hard to find, and so now it's, you can, I can get it on iTunes. And it's, it's filled with these laments. And one of them is drawn from Psalm 69. And it's a song, Down in the Lowlands, where the water is deep. Hear my cry. And that's the song that I turned to numerous times when I felt that need for lament because I was downcast. And it's funny as I think about this, the American church has in large part lost the ability to lament. If you go on K-Love, most of those songs are cheery and upbeat. There's a couple that you'll find that deal with real struggles. But most of the time, it's happy. And the American church wants a happy faith. And there, is time, there are times for joy. In fact, joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Okay, But there's also a time for lament. There's another song that Charlie Peacock did on a different album. Now is the time for tears. And it's interesting that I, uh, I started to work on this before all of the events of the last week or so. But this is a song that comes back to me. This is a psalm that comes back to me. And I need to lament The big idea is that God will preserve his persecuted people. There's no way I can do justice to this psalm in uh, what you hope is 35 minutes. (laughs) So bear with me as I leave out much of this. But the first thing I want us to remember is that faith continues to cry out. This is, as I mentioned, a lament. And what a lament is, is a meditation on misery. And so we see through the structure of this psalm that he keeps returning back to what's going on. And and it keeps getting worse, not better, as he continues. And so there's there's these cycles that go through this psalm. And so there's, I think, three times that we get to this idea of misery and lament that it begins with. What he's doing is he's pouring out his heart to God. We saw that last week and a couple of times, this encouragement to pour out your heart to God, and that is precisely what David is doing in this psalm. As he meditates on his misery, he's pouring out before God, and this is an important thing that I think we need to keep in mind. If we remember the wilderness experience for the Israelites and how they complained against God, we're almost tempted to think this is the same thing, and it's very different. Because in the wilderness, they were complaining. Uh, they, in a sense, were ignoring God and just whining about their circumstances and blaming Moses. Or, you, know, you, know, the, you, heard, you remember the refrains, oh, there weren't enough graves in Egypt, you had to bring us out here so we could die. Okay, that's complaining, and that's not what's going on here and that's not a holy thing this is a pouring out of your heart it's being honest about the misery you're experience but he's connecting it back to god it's not disconnected from faith but it is actually an expression of faith whereas really the complaining is an expression of unbelief and so while on the surface they might look similar they are in fact very different things We see here that David represents through, uh, you know, the circumstances of his suffering are very veiled to us. They're generalized in a sense so that David can represent any of God's people, and in fact, all of God's people. And we see even more that his words are then put into the mouth of Jesus the Messiah, and so this is not just a lament, this is a messianic lament. This is actually the third most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And so we will, we're going to see that a lot of these experiences that David talks about apply directly to the suffering of Jesus. And so it's not just about David But through the Spirit of Christ, speaking through David, we learn about the ministry of Jesus himself, his sufferings. So it's a messianic lament. As I mentioned, it cycles through repeatedly, and as it says, it gets worse. But it starts off pretty bad because he says, the waters have come up to my neck. He's running out of time because the waters are rising. And soon, they'll cover him. He's sinking down into the deep. He's in danger of drowning. And he's crying. He, can see, he still is able to open his mouth. And he's crying out to God, but apparently no one hears. He's been crying so much that his throat is parched. It's burned. As I read this, I can't help but think of Aaron Ralston. Some of you may not remember that name. Back in the early part of this century, which wasn't all that long ago. He was, of course, a, uh, a hiker in, the, in Utah, and he got trapped. His arm was stuck when he was running through a canyon. His story is uh, in the movie 72 Hours. You probably don't want to watch that movie. it doesn't end well for Aaron. Um, but anyway, it's, it's that, that existential time of you're, you're stuck, you can't get out, and no one hears your cries, because you're in a remote place, and if you don't get out, you're going to die. He only had enough water for a couple of days. That's the psalmist. Notice how aware he is of his body. There's no place for his feet to rest. It's it's slippery. There's no solid place for him to to, uh, be able to position himself, reposition himself, and get out of his mess. His throat, which we mentioned, is parched. It's dry as a bone, as uh, Charlie Peacock Uh, Sort of took some poetic license with it. We talk. His eyes are failing. He's very aware of his body in the midst of this. In verse fourteen, it comes back. He returns to the mire, and the enemies are like deep waters that are flooding. This it's overwhelming to him. But it got worse. We see later on, the pit, close its mouth over me. It's almost like he's in the the belly of a beast, and he can see the mouth closing, almost with finality, almost with this is the end. Similar to the experience of, of Joseph and Jeremiah, both of whom were thrown into cisterns. Joseph initially was going to be left to die. Jeremiah was going to be left there, I think, for the Babylonians. Okay. And this is the experience of David. It's like he's in a cistern, and he's in the muddy clay at the bottom, and he's sinking in, getting farther and farther away from deliverance that he cannot reach, and it's like someone is about to put a stone on over the cistern. Reminded of some of those movies where the heroine is in grave danger and you don't know if the hero is going to make it. Or in today's culture, sometimes it's the hero who's in trouble and the heroine shows up. Okay? It can happen. What's the problem What's going on that David feels so lost? The problem is his enemies. They are more in number than the hairs of my head, which is one of those phrases that is take, quoted in the New Testament with regard to Jesus. He is falsely accused. And so these numerous enemies are falsely accusing David of, of things. Okay? Okay. He has been accused of stealing something, and there's this idea of restoration that he's struggling with. When you're, when you're in the right, but everyone treats you like you're in the wrong, that's what David is grappling with. We're not sure if the experiences of Shammai, we, which we, talk, we talked about him last week, uh, are, are here. But of course, he accused David of stealing the throne from Saul's family. Okay? David didn't steal the throne, God gave him the throne, but ungodly people don't always see the truth of the matter. Jesus, of course, himself was also often falsely accused in numerous ways. His whole trial was a sham, and so his experience, of course, is similar to that of David's experience But what's interesting in all of this is that, okay, um, why, well, what did I. What I did not steal, I must now restore, okay? And so he's saying, I didn't do what they said I did. But then the very next verse, verse 5, O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. And so while he didn't do what he's accused of doing, he's not saying he's perfect. He's acknowledging, I have done wrong. You know exactly what I have rightfully done, or, you know, what I actually have done that's wrong, and you know when I've been falsely accused of something. And here is where, in a sense, the departure from Jesus takes place, because Jesus did not have any folly that was known to God, because he had no folly. But we see, as the sin-bearer, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, as we see in 2 Corinthians 5. And so while Jesus had no folly of his own, he takes our folly upon himself in his suffering so that we can be rescued from the wrath of God. And so David knows he's not perfect. He acknowledges his sin before God, but that God knows that in this particular matter, he is innocent of the charges. But it's sort of even worse. Even his own family has turned against him. And this deepens his distress. And Jesus understood this completely. We see in John 7, not even his brothers believed in him, and even worse, in Mark 3, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Jesus' own family turned against him during his earthly ministry. Jesus knows what that is like. Why did they hate him so much? We see this frequently quoted passage. Zeal for your house has consumed me. It was his devotion to God that resulted in the hatred of so many. In other words, David is being persecuted. ungodly people are rising against him because of his faith. And because of his faith, they falsely accuse him of many things. We see Jeremiah, who later would be in the cistern, expressing a similar idea. Oh Lord, you know, Remember me and visit me, and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. And reproach is one of those words that keeps getting piled up in this psalm as well. It's almost like he's being buried under reproach, like he's being drowned by the waters. The church has known this. When Nero burned down the city, what did he do? He blamed the Christians. And apparently it worked so well that that became the modus operandi of the people of the day. Tertullian writes in the 4th century, If the Tiber floods the city, or if the Nile refuses to rise, or if the sky withholds its rain, if there is an earthquake, a famine, a pestilence, At once the cry is raised, Christians to the lions. Public hatred asks but one thing, not the investigation of the crimes charged, but simply the confession of the Christian name. It was standard practice to blame the Christians. That, in fact, is why Augustine wrote his great book, City of God. Because as the Roman Empire was falling, who were they blaming? Were they blaming their own decadence? Nope. Were they blaming their own incompetent leaders? Nope. Who were they blaming? The Christians. And so he wrote City of God to explain, essentially, why it's not the church's fault. That it wasn't the church that had made Rome weak, but it was something else that had made Rome weak. We see that even today. What happened this week? There were some people who blamed the shooting on Christians. Now, at this point, they're the the, you know, the fringe folk who are doing that. But don't be surprised if it becomes commonplace. Jesus was persecuted without cause. Jesus was the one who bore our sins. But what we see is that neither David nor Jesus gave up. They continued to express faith here in the psalm and Jesus in his own ministry and continued to cry out to God. And so faith helps us to face our circumstances and continue to cry out for God's help. Okay. Secondly, hopefully this gets less dreary, but hey, we're talking about a lament, right? Trust the Savior to save. Hear his cries. Save me, O God. Deliver me from sinking. Redeem me. Rescue me. Why is it that he that he is crying out to God? It's because of what he believes about God, what he believes about who God is, and what God can do. It's Father's Day, so I'll, I'll share one story of my father. I was home alone with him. He was downstairs working on something, and, uh, <clears throat> and suddenly I heard this crash. He had fallen, and his cry was, Elaine, Elaine. My mother was nowhere to be found. It was just me. Thankfully, I did not disregard his cries. (laughs) I went down to make sure he was okay, but he cried out for the one person he thought would help him and could help him. That's what David is doing. As we talked about last week, he's not crying out for the mighty men, he's crying out to God because he believes God loves him, and he believes God cares about him, and he believes that God has power to deliver him. We see this when he calls him the Lord God of hosts, as one contemporary songwriter has put it, the God of angel armies. This is the one. He doesn't need his mighty men precisely because he has a God who has armies who can come and deliver him. He's like a man on his walkie-talkie or radio calling in the heavy support, the military might. He's not content with a platoon to come to his side, but he needs the full weight of God's armies. And so, brothers and sisters, we must be convinced of God's ability to deliver us from any situation. David was convinced of that ability. That's why he continued to cry out. This is what Corrie ten Boom learned in the the prison camps. Her her sentence there, her, her, her confession that there is no pit so deep but Christ is deeper still, is so appropriate for this psalm. David was in deep, but the arm of God reaches deeper still to pluck him out. Jesus knew that if he asked, the Father would send 12 legions of angels to deliver him. And that's why he told Peter to put away the sword at his arrest. Matthew 26, 53, if you're interested in the citation on that. But if the angels came, we'd still be in our sins. We'll get back to that in a little bit. Not only is he convinced of, that he is the God of angel armies, but he, talk, he speaks about the abundance of your steadfast love. He says, your steadfast love is good. And so, God is a loyal God. Because the love that is being spoken here is not of a sort of fickle love. Many of us went through middle school and high school, and we know about fickle love, puppy love, infatuation, where you go from boyfriend or girlfriend week by week, depending on your mood for the day. That wasn't me, of course. Um, But this is a steadfast love, a covenantal love, a for better or worse kind of love, a richer or poorer kind of love, sickness and in health kind of love. And so he knows that God has promised to stick by him through thick and thin. And so he's banking on that abundant Steadfast love. God doesn't have just a little bit of love, but he has all the love that is needed. He speaks of God's saving faithfulness, which again points to this idea of reliability, that God can be relied upon to deliver because he has spoken of himself as that, and he doesn't lie. He speaks of God's abundant mercy, his infinite compassion, which sets the stage for what, of how Paul speaks of God who is rich in mercy in Ephesians 2. Okay. There's lots of love for his people to spare. And so, His character is revealed in this psalm as a God who saves, which is why we can continue to cry out, save me, deliver me, ransom me, lift me up. However you want to express it, we can still cry it. But there's something in this that's dark as well. Because not only is this a lament, and not only is this a messianic lament, we also see that portion of this is also an imprecatory psalm, verses 22 through 28. An imprecatory psalm is essentially a cry for justice, that the other person who was in the wrong would get theirs. And so David has seven verses of that. And it's the acknowledgement that that our salvation includes the judgment on the wicked. He wants justice. He wants appropriate justice. They They were people who showed him no mercy, and so he asked that no mercy be shown to them. There's this rather cryptic phrase here of let their own table before them become a snare. And the place where James Montgomery Boyce takes this is the reality of superficial religion. And it's really a warning for those uh, who come to the table and it has no effect on their lives. It may It become a snare or a trap to them. In a sense, may they be given over to the hardness of their hearts and revealed to be what they really are, which is a counterfeit Christian. And so we see that true faith will lead us to godly living, and in the same way, a false faith leads us to godless living and a hardened heart. And so what David, I think, is really trying to get here is is that he wants their true state to be revealed. Remember, everyone thinks David's the bad guy. He wants it to be known that they are the bad guys who are responsible for evil. Evil. This is another one of those places where, at least for a while, we see a discontinuity with the messianic work of Jesus because at the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know what, not what they do. He didn't say, Father, it's time to bring the angels to wipe them out. But we do know, of course, in Revelation 19, there will be a day of our salvation in the judgment upon the world. And so God can be trusted to save us because of his power, because of his love, because of his loyalty, because of his compassion. So where does that leave us? When the resurrection resolves all, we will rejoice. You see, David expresses many hopes, and we see in verse 13, he has this phrase that God will deliver him at an acceptable time. We're going to get back to that phrase in a little bit. But there's a future aspect to this. After that appropriate time, he says, I will praise the name of God with a song. In other words, he's going to boast in God in his songs. And as I was looking in my theological workbook of the Old Testament this week, it was interesting that the the root of halal has its, uh, the idea of to shine. And so there's a sense in which to praise is to shine upon something. It's like using a spotlight to identify something, and that something is the greatness and goodness of God. And so praise is like a spotlight. Look how awesome he is. Look how kind. Look how powerful. Look how generous. Look, look, and rejoice. David's not there yet, but he anticipates the day when it's going to happen, when God will deliver him, and when God does it, he's going to shine the spotlight. Look at how great God is. What a mighty deliverer. That's what he's going to do. He says, I will magnify him with thanksgiving. In other words, this is helping others to see how great God is. Eli went yard sailing recently, and he bought a telescope. And so he wants to go out at night and look up at the stars and the planets, and, and um, he's packed it away for our trip. Because when you go to upstate New York, it's very dark and you can see so many stars and satellites and all kinds of things in the sky and that's what the, you know, the reality of what a telescope is, is while that tiny thing, to us, (laughs) is really a humongous thing, if we were to see it up close. But the telescope helps us to see that faraway thing more clearly. And so that's what David is getting at. God seems so far away. It's so difficult for us to to sometimes grasp the greatness of God. And I'm going to magnify like a telescope so people can see the greatness of God. David's longing for that day when he can do it. He's going to confess all of the good that God has done for him. In other words, while we should keep short accounts with uh, sin with others, we should keep long accounts, I think, with God on when he delivers us. We need to share it. And sometimes I think that is one thing that we Christians are not as good about. We're not very good about talking with one another about the many ways God has delivered us of giving testimony to his faithfulness throughout the course of our lives in the many dangers we have experienced, but he's brought us through. And sometimes our fellowship is not as deep as it should be with one another precisely because we don't do that, because that is the story of our lives. And so we sort of keep our stories away from one another, and we settle for talk about the Red Sox. Okay. Unless we use them for spiritual application, of course. (laughs) Excuse me. Yes. We Presbyterians sometimes can be so staid in our worship, that's why we're called the frozen chosen, Uh, we've lost sight of the need for testimony, but it doesn't have to happen in a worship service. It can happen one-on-one or in small groups. But telling people how great God is because of how He's delivered you Let's get back to that phrase, an acceptable time. Our problem often is that our acceptable time is not the same as God's acceptable time. We don't want the pit to close up on us. Hebrews 10, for instance. um, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. When was Jesus heard? Was he saved? From the death on the cross? No. He was resurrected from the dead. Okay? Now, He had to die in order to deliver us, okay? So he couldn't be delivered before this happened. And there are going going to be times, brothers and sisters, when the acceptable time for God to deliver us is not in the present, but in the resurrection. Resurrection. that the blood of the martyrs is the seedbed of the church, that it's necessary for others to come to saving faith because you are one who has believed God to be worthy of your faith even though they slay you. And your attitude echoes that of Job. Though he slay me, I will trust in him. For instance, we see it echoed in, in Hebrews 10. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach, there's that word again, and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and that refers to Christians who were in prison, not you know, murderers or something like that, people imprisoned for their faith, okay? And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew, and here's the, here's the key, that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. If you don't believe that you have a better possession and an abiding possession in Jesus, you will not be willing to endure persecution. David thought he had that, which is why he kept crying out for God to deliver him, and he promised that he would indeed worship God when it was all said and done. And so, like these people in Hebrews, many witnesses have not experienced earthly deliverance, but they do experience eternal deliverance. And so our resurrection is the fullest deliverance from sin, from shame, from scorn, and when it's done, we will rejoice forever. So Jesus does have something to say to his persecuted people because Jesus himself was a persecuted person. Even deeper than that, in our union with Christ He identifies fully with us. When Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, he didn't say, Why are you persecuting my people? He said, Why are you persecuting me? Because of our union with Christ. He fully identifies with us. And so when we are persecuted, he is persecuted. His story and our story become intertwined together. And through this psalm, he reminds us to keep crying out in faith. So that one day, you know, to keep crying out, to keep trusting God to save us. And so while this might be overwhelming right now in a very bad sense, we will one day be overwhelmed with joy and gratitude. In the best possible sense that will result in profound worship when we're delivered. And so basically, what Jesus says to his persecuted people is, I will rescue you. You will rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that lament is not the end of the story. We thank you that even earthly, physical death is not the end of the story. But it often feels that way to us. We thank you that you know we are made of but dust and clay. that we are like grass, which withers and fades. So you have mercy and compassion on us. So thank you for this sure word that you have given us in this psalm to remind us of the bigger picture when we feel like we are being overwhelmed, when we feel like we are drowning, when we feel like it's all closing in, Father, help us to lament, to learn how to pour out our hearts to You as an act of faith, to flee from complaining as an act of unbelief, and to anticipate the joy of rejoicing, when You, in fact, do indeed deliver Your people. So between point A and point B, Father, help us to grow in faith and hope and love. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.